Welcome to episode number 14 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we get an update on how one Canadian gliding club is dealing with the COVID pandemic and flying operations. In California, Jim Payne has been breaking records in Nixus, a one-of-a-kind 28-meter two-seat super ship with a fly-by-wire control system. We talk to Jim and the glider's designer, Paolo Iskold. On Gliding Club Confidential, we go to Denmark and find out how Danes like to soar over their very flat nation. From Russia with love, we hear from an American glider pilot who's had a lifelong affair with a Russian 18-meter glider, a glider he has finally been able to get his hands on. That and a whole lot more on episode number 14 of The Thermal. The global pandemic known as COVID-19 has left a devastating trail of death in its wake, and it's far from over. The daily global infection rate, as reported by the World Health Organization, is still on the increase. It's a first world problem when you can't fly, but for those of us whose passion is gliding, the impact has been everything from severe to negligible. In March, there was a special edition of the Thermal to talk about the pandemic and the impact on gliding. My guest was Dr. Dale Gunter, family physician and the president of my gliding club, the Southern Ontario Soaring Association. I once again reached Dale at his home in Dundas, Ontario. So Dale, the last time we spoke on the show, something like 100 days ago, the gliding club had been shut down. Give us an update. Where are things now? Sure. It seems like an awful lot has happened in uh, in those 100 days. feels like we've been through... Uh, uh, many different stages of all this, but um, uh, it sure looks different. Uh, where we're at at the moment uh, is that we are running a, a pretty much a full operation uh, at SOSA. We have um, training happening uh, with uh, instructors and pre-licensed students uh, uh, sharing a cockpit uh, and going for uh, training rides. Um, those uh, have been happening for four days. Uh, prior to that, we had a week or so of, of getting uh, uh, licensed uh, people, in, licensed pilots into the cockpits for their annual check rides uh, with an instructor. So we decided that that was going to work according to our regional regulations and such. And uh, that, uh, um, that was, of course, one or two rides uh, to get the person signed off and uh and i guess it was a week or so before that uh, that we uh, no that's not true it was probably three weeks before that that we started uh having people fly their own private gliders or club gliders uh, uh solo uh, and uh, those are people who had extensive experience flying and did not need an annual check ride and that we as a club uh, determined we're, we're qualified to go flying on their own uh, and would be safe that in that sense. Now, so we've let got... me approach just for a sec. So sure, yeah. one of the things about opening up that I heard that you guys had done, you modeled, you said the gliding club is going to be like marina or a golf club. So tell me a little bit about the thinking that was going on with the board of directors when you decided to open up the gliding club, that it was safe to do so. Yeah. You know, our biggest struggle through all of this has been to figure out where we fit in public health regulations because uh, nobody talks about gliding clubs as a, as a subject line. And so um, so we had decided to say that, well, if an inspector came out to see us, then they'd be looking at, at comparing us with, uh, with golf courses and marinas. Uh, we thought, you know, they're recreational, they're not essential services. Um, they both have the potential to have people quite close together, but also quite far apart. They're both outdoors. Um, and uh, our, our government was, uh, was identifying them uh, in, their, in the regulations as, as each different uh, change went along. You know, we wanted to be safe for ourselves. We wanted to be sure that our members are safe. Um, but we probably even more than that wanted to be sure that we were going to be allowed to stay open uh, and we would we would be able to pass any scrutiny from the regulators around that. So so that's where we we fit ourselves. And it was when those were allowed to to um, operate uh, and then um, 
when they were allowed to have uh, you know full operations and partial operations and so on we just went lockstep with them and at each stage we had to have all of our protocols in place around sanitization and screening people and distancing and signage uh, and so on now, now we mentioned distancing how has that worked out with the training aircraft obviously you can't do two meters in the trainers yeah no it's pretty hard uh, you'd have to really lean in in two different directions um, yeah so that's the that's clearly our highest risk zone is uh, is two people inside this little cockpit sharing a bunch of air um, that's blowing all around and uh, I think that's had us the most nervous uh, from the start um, you know, regulations for similar kinds of kinds of uh, locations and such um, have been that people need to wear masks again nobody has talked about the glider cockpit specifically but uh, we've taken that to mean that we need to wear masks when we're uh, doing training both the student and the instructor and uh, having now done that for about 10 days uh, where student and instructor are in the same plane I think we've realized that uh, this is not practical especially in our area where um, it is very hot and very humid, and um, we're, we're actually concerned that for a student to, to sort of be uh, struggling with a mask and whether it's fogging their glasses and whether they're breathing okay and all of that is a safety risk uh, from a flying point of view. So, um, so I think our masking is ending up being pretty partial, and we've decided really that we have to rely very much on a full disclosure personal conversation between the two people who will share a cockpit and those two people have to convince each other um, that they're both going to be safe uh, in terms of their uh, infectious risk so they're talking about what is the rest of their lives like where do they work where do they work um, where have they been uh, and making convincing each other that they are willing to fly with each other so that's so it's, really a, it's a way of thinking. You're, you're, you're not ignoring government regulations or anything. You're being practical from a safety point of view and a training point of view. So it's, you're, you're still applying uh, a certain set of guidelines to this, but you're being smart about it, right? We hope so. That's, that's the hope. Um, we, we, what we know we're not willing to do is say we're not going to fly. Um, it, and honestly, the, at our club, everybody has been... Uh, they're very eager to be in the air, and and uh, I mean there are there are those who aren't as eager and aren't showing up, um, but that's also that's also a fair decision. But yes, we're trying to be pragmatic uh, and at the same time not be uh, dismissive of of what the what the guidelines are. And you also have, I mean, with the club membership, you'll have people that are on both ends of the spectrum. Some people who are extremely concerned and probably, well, you know, if, if they come to the club, they'll only maybe fly their single seaters. And you have other people at the other end of the spectrum who think, ah, whatever, it doesn't affect me. So how do you find a, a balance between all of that with the membership? Well, the biggest thing is to make sure that people just understand that they can they can do what they're what they're comfortable with. I should say um, they shouldn't do what they're not comfortable with. That's That's a more accurate statement. And so we definitely have instructors uh, who have said they're not instructing at this point yet. We definitely have students who have said, I am not going to go for training at this point yet. We do not have the numbers we usually have. There's no doubt about it. So people are already voting with their feet not to be there. Mm -hmm. um, but for those who are there, you know, I think, I think they're taking a, a careful but pragmatic approach to, to all of this. The spacing is is going well the sanitizing of the surfaces is going well and honestly in in the hundred days since we closed before we've learned so much more worldwide about the spread of this virus before we were we were really worried that we might catch it by touching a wing surface or by um, uh, you know surfaces in general um, now it appears that there's there's hardly any transmission that's happening by surfaces um, it appears that there's a lot of viral killing happening by ultraviolet radiation. Um, we know that uh, the vast majority ultraviolet of ultraviolet radiation, we're talking sunlight, right? Like sunlight, yeah. There, we've got plenty of that. We've got plenty of disinfectant going on all around us. Um, we know that the vast majority of infections are in people who are in close proximity, meaning closer than two meters for more than 15 minutes. 
um, and uh, and repeatedly. And that's not that's just not what we're doing mm -hmm. in in this context. So there's a lot of things in our favor. The other thing is that deaths have been really, really in our region, almost all in people over the age of 65. Now, I say that cautiously because I'm not that far from that age, and we have a yeah. lot of club members who are well over that age, and those people do need to be um, looking at their involvement in the club in a, in a really particular way to themselves. Right. But, um, but uh, not everybody um, is running the same risk by being there, so people can start to now categorize themselves a little bit differently. Now, I understand you did have a, or the club had a visit from a, a local health inspector? Yes, well, actually, it was the very first weekend that we started operating, and uh, um, we had private, only private ships that were being launched, and only solo, and there were a very small number of people actually at the field, but interestingly, because we attracted attention in the air, uh, somebody did call and uh, point out that we were doing things that maybe weren't uh, supposed to be done. So the inspector did come by and noted that there were people there, that they were well spaced out, and it didn't appear that there was anything missing in terms of protocol, um, and said, that's fine, keep going. So that was before we were doing dual flying, but um, we also got some advice on when we could start dual flying and things like that. Um, so we felt we felt actually good that we had an early, we had early scrutiny and we passed and we were okay. Dale, would you have any advice for other clubs that are in the process of starting up operations again? Is there anything that you, you'd like to pass along? Yeah, you know, I think um, we, we all do need to, in everything to do with this epidemic, we all need to keep going boldly forward. Uh, we, we can't let, us, let it stop us from everything that uh, gives us life and joy, and so we have to find ways forward. Um, I would say... Uh, uh, just keep talking to each other and and for those who and, and respecting what everybody is feeling about it because everybody's having a completely different experience of it uh, in their lives and their families and and we just have to respect everybody's spot in all of this and then it'll go fine dale thanks for your hard work i appreciate the time and uh safe flying okay thanks harry okay take, take care. care bye dr dale gunter is president of the southern ontario soaring association he spoke to me from dundas ontario Nixus is a one-of-a-kind 28-meter fly-by-wire two-place supership and it's breaking records. On June 10th, pilot Jim Payne with co-pilot Alan Coombs broke three U.S. national soaring records for open-class multi-place gliders after launching from Minden, Nevada. The latest U.S. records include distance around a triangle and speed around a triangle in a two-seat open-class sailplane along with free distance around a triangle. Jim actually broke the record he had personally set in 1996 with his brother Tom some 24 years and two days earlier. Nixus is a one-of-a-kind glider created by Brazilian-born aerospace engineer and professor Paulo Iscold. It has a wingspan of nearly 100 feet and an aspect ratio of 53.3 to 1, making it a ratio of span and cord that has been exceeded only once in aviation history. The glider was built with help from his students at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. I reached Nixus pilot Jim Payne and Nixus designer Paolo Iscold in Minden, Nevada. Gentlemen, congratulations are, are obviously in order. Very well done. Thank you. Thank you. So, Paolo, let's back up just a little bit. How long has this Nixus project been in the works, and what does Nixus actually mean? Uh, Nixus project started in 2000, the end of 2015. And so what is that, five years now? Um, almost five years. And... Nixus, we choose that name because it's a, it's a word in Latin that means pushing forward. And the, the yeah, that's story interesting behind I looked it up and I, I saw a bunch of different Latin meanings, and that's why I couldn't figure out which one it was. Well, the one that motivated us to, to, to use the name was pushing forward, um, pressing forward, something right. like that. Well, not and, bad. In four or five years, you got this glider off the ground and flying and have broken records. That's fantastic. 
Yeah, I wish I wish it was shorter than that. I want to do more projects through my life. I don't, I'm going to run out of time. <laughs> so, so Jim, what what is Nixus like to fly? Can can you notice the difference between a, a glider with push rods and cables and and a fly by wire system? Well, in a sentence, I tell people it's like flying an open class sailplane with power steering. <laughs> Nice. You know, typically, an open-class sailplane is going to have relatively high aileron forces. And also, because it has such a high aspect ratio, I think the roll damping is a little less. But, uh, you know, in pitch, of course, the pitch is a standard ASH-30. Rudder is standard ASH-30. But uh, the flaps and ailerons, because they're fly-by-wire, um, you, know, you have less stick force. And as such, it's uh, not as fatiguing on a long flight. So some of those stick forces are adjusted automatically by the by the system, I understand? Well, actually, the only stick force you really see is the stick is mechanically connected to the very outboard aileron. It's got six segments on each side, and that does uh, you know, provide some force feedback. The other aileron segments are all fly-by-wire. They have absolutely no feedback, so hmm. it does uh, greatly reduce the stick force, but it's really pleasant. And and the aspect ratio, I mean, when you look out the window, that, that is one heck of a long wing. I, I was joking yesterday. I did a flight with Jim, and I was talking with a friend, and I said, do you know why the, the main pilot on the glider, on this glider, go in the front seat? <laughs> why? It's because he, he can't see the wings, because on the back <laughs> seat, it's too long. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's big, and he moves a lot. So, so Paolo, talk to me about these wings. How how razor thin are they? I understand they're you you can't put very much in them. Uh, yeah. So as the the, the fifty three aspect ratio with twenty eight meters of wingspan, I believe my maximum cord, it's about sixty centimeters, wow. six hundred millimeters, and the airflow is thirteen percent. When Luke Borsman. <clears throat> joined the project and start to, to help develop the Air Force, he asked me, what is the minimum that you can take from the structural point of view? And 13% was the number that we used. So yeah, there is not much space inside the wing and most of the space is taken by, by the spar. So I would say to build a wing like that with all the mechanical uh, mixing inside, it will be way bigger challenge than build this wing fly-by-wire. Now, I understand you also had a, an issue initially earlier on when you were, were testing the wings. You actually did have a structural failure. Yes, I did. Um, the failure was on the junction between the wings. Um, it's, it's a long story, but just to try to make it a little bit shorter, uh, I did the structural analysis correct. When I did the CAD drawings, I made a mistake, and I built based on the CAD drawings. Right. So when I test the wing, the wing broke. It took me like two or three days to figure out why. When I figured out why, I went back to the structural model, and I, I simulate the wing as the wing was built, and I predict the failure within 1%. Right, so you so figured out was, what was wrong. Yeah, it was... One of the blocks where the, the pin that connects the outboard to the inboard wing goes through, on the inboard wing, is, sorry, on the outboard wing, that block supposed to be longer than the blocks on the inboard wing. And when I did the CAD model, I drew the inboard wing block first, and I copy and paste that through the, the, the other wing. And, and Jim, and as that a test pilot, I bet you're very happy that Paolo figured this out on the ground. Absolutely. I was there when it happened, so... Yeah. I think if Jim was not there when it happened, it would be really difficult to carry on with the project. Because as an engineer, my feeling was, okay, now nobody will trust on me anymore, you know? I broke it. And and Jim was there, and his, his attitude was super positive. And he was like, okay, let's figure out, and, and that's the reason that we test. And... And then I actually, I, I sent a message to Luke Borsman, and, and Luke told me, Paulo, don't worry. Even the big manufacturers, they break wings quite often. So just figure out what's the problem yeah. and fix it. So, so Jim, this flight earlier this month in, in early June that you, I think June 10th, 
Talk to me about the flight. How uh, did the day all line up for you beautifully through SkySight and you knew it was going to happen? Or talk to me about the flight. I've done uh, a couple of big triangles here from Minden. Unfortunately, Minden, we have a challenge with airspace because of the restricted areas that are associated with China Lake. Mm-hmm. Not China Lake, but Fallon. U.S. And Air Force also, stuff. Well, in this case, it's U.S. Navy. Navy, okay. Yeah. Um, and there's a Fallon sink, which is, or the Carson sink, which is by Fallon. And uh, it's an area where we don't necessarily have a lot of good lift. But the way the weather develops at Minden on most good days is you have a southerly wind in the morning and the lift is better to the south. So you kind of have the choice of going the wrong way around, which means you know, your first leg is into the wind when the lift is not quite as strong. Or if you go the correct way around, so you have a tailwind on your first leg, you're going into area where the lift is kind of weak still. So. On this particular day, showed the lift starting relatively early in the north and the potential for cumulus. So I decided I would try a 1,000K triangle going uh, the correct way around with the tailwind on the first leg, and it worked out well. And you broke your own record? From uh, 24 years and two days before, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It it sounds like you guys have a really good symbiotic team going here with, with Paolo being the designer and the the architect behind the aircraft and and you're the man in the cockpit we've had a lot of fun together yep. Yep. yeah absolutely i must tell the work with jim is it's a huge pleasure jim and jackie here i'm learning so much uh it's for me it's like one unique opportunity that i couldn't miss it so paulo tell me a little bit more about it. it's a university project you've got students that help you on this what was the genesis of this and how were you able to finance this because even a you know a unique one-of-a-kind glider like this isn't cheap yeah well the story starts when i was living still living in brazil i was an aeronautical engineer professor there building race airplanes with my students Uh, we set uh, nine world records with uh, two airplanes that we built there and I had this friend in Brazil that I actually never had met him personally. It was just an online friend, Sergio. And he was an avid sailplane pilot. And he was always telling me, hey, I want you to, to build a glider for me. And I was like, uh, I, I don't really want to do that. You know, the, the, the commercial gliders are so far ahead of us or far ahead of me that for me to catch up and build something that will be competitive would take a lot. And so we kind of date for 13 years. <laughs> he, he'd tell me that, and I was like, no. And when I finished my last race plane, he invited me to go fly his glider, and I took it. It was the first time I flew an open class. Um, and the whole flap system was really interesting for me, because you know how to optimize that. Mm-hmm. And, and he was flying based on speed. And, and during the flight, I was like, well, wait a minute, this should not be based on speed, it should be based on lift coefficient. But now, you know, how can you fly that, um, combine airspeed and load factor to then calculate, you know, it's impossible, almost impossible for a pilot. And, and I told him, hey, that, that's something that I'm interested in. Uh, maybe create a, like an automatic flap system, a fly-by-wire. So the first thing that I did was to build an automatic system for his Ash 30 in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And we did that. It worked beautifully. And, and then I was excited. He was excited. And I also had this personal challenge with myself, you know, mm-hmm. the, the aspect ratio it's a magical number for an aeronautical engineer. And if you look around the world, big, bigger wings, bigger than 50 to one aspect ratio, I would say we have a four or five only. And, and including you're, you're the second longest wing, right? Didn't I see that? You're, there's only one yeah, other. Yeah, Concordia is 57, uh, Nix is 53. I believe the EB-29 is 51. And ETA was 50 point something. I, I don't remember the numbers exactly. But I would say those are the only four wings ever built that are over 50 to 1. So I combined the two challenges, you know, the fly-by-wire and the high aspect ratio. And then we create the, 
the project Nixus and and the, the the name again pushing forward is because it was something never made in 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 this sport. So and, why to not give it a try? And was it hard to get Jim aboard? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> was it a, Jim? Was it a, when you heard about this glider? Did you think to yourself, I want to fly it? I've always interested in projects like the Perlin and the Nixus, and of course. Uh, as a test pilot, it's in my DNA. Yeah. Right. First time that I met Jim was here in Minden, and, and I came here just, we had lunch together, and I showed the project, and he was really supportive. And on the back of my mind, I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to invite him to go do the first flight for me. But, you know, at the same time, how the heck you invite someone to sit down on something that you build and go fly the first time? So it took me a little bit of time to 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 be brave enough to invite him. But when so I invite who, him... Who was more nervous on the test flight, Paolo, you or Jim? Of course, I am always <laughs> more nervous. So, you know, the, the when he flew the record, it was the first time that uh, he... Nixus flew without me around. They put the airplane together and they did everything. And I was back home in San Luis Obispo. Just, I would told my wife, it's like, you know, left your kid on kindergarten first day right. and go home. It's terrible. But you left him with responsible adults. You left your plane oh, with yeah. responsible adults. So Jim, put, yeah. put us put us back in the cockpit and give me a sense of what it's like. You said it feels like an automatic transmission. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to get an idea again of what it feels like to fly this aircraft. Well, it's very much like flying any open-class sailplane. Um, you know, the wing loading is high, it's relatively heavy. So compared to a standard class cell plane, it's not nearly as nimble because of the inertias. But you have the lighter aileron forces, so it's easier to initiate roll and keep the airplane rolling. Um, because of the high wing loading, um, it's an outstanding cell plane in a straight line. So on these long flights, you know, you try to find lip lines as you fly, so you avoid areas of sink and uh, minimize your circling. Yeah, it's not it's not a thermaline glider, right? Yeah, the thermal's good, but yeah. uh, you know, as I tell people, when you're thermaline, half the time you're headed the wrong way. So <laughs> that's that's why I prefer the wave. You know, on the wave, I've done wave flights where the only turns I made were at the turn points. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, there's is there any balance in this glider? Um, it has the capability of ballast. Um, at this point, uh, we haven't used the water ballast system, mainly because we already got a pretty high wing loading. Right. Now, Paolo, I understand you've been up in Minden this week tweaking the glider. What are you doing to it this week? Uh, this week, we've installed the, the wing fuel tanks. Uh, we have some bladders for, to put fuel on the wing. Uh, we are trying to address some wheel brake um, I would not say problems, it's just because the glider is too heavy, we, we're having to upgrade the wheel brake to, to dissipate the energy that we have when we land. Mm -hmm. So we're working on that. And I'm doing some uh, tools for ground handling, like wing wheels, like uh, because it's fly-by-wire, when you put a wing wheel, you know, the bicycle wheel, um, that wheel cannot clamp the flaps because the flaps want to move. In the wind yeah, or whatever, so, right? Okay, because you'll then damage. Yeah, so the... we have to build a special one to, to do that. Um, today we did the canopy ceiling. So it's it's a never-ending project. So we always have something to do, something to change, something to improve. And and the, the pandemic actually gave me this opportunity to st spend more time here because I, I can't teach online. So it doesn't matter if I'm... Right, doesn't matter where you are. Yeah, it's, so I'm, it's I'm, nice I'm to hear of an upside to the pandemic because it's uh, certainly not getting any better, from what I understand. Yeah. So, so gentlemen, what's what's next for Team Nexus? Are there any more records coming down the pike? What are you thinking? Well, when it comes to records, it depends on the weather, but uh, I have a couple of uh, records in mind, and when the weather cooperates, we'll have a go. And, and what are those records? Oh, things like 750 kilometer out and return speed, the larger triangle. Um, and when the wave returns, I'd like to try a very long flight, try to do 3,000 kilometers. 
And now, and what's the chance that you're going to have a, a, a co-pilot called Paolo in the uh, front seat? Oh, we had yesterday. Oh, yesterday. Okay. <laughs> yes. But I don't know about those records. I can't fit on the back seat really well. Okay. So records, we're going to have some small one on the back seat. Well, gentlemen, listen, it's, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you and learning about this unique one-off glider. And it sounds like you're having a lot of fun flying this thing and improving it. Oh, you bet. You bet. So take care. And I'm looking forward to hearing about more records that are going to fall to this glider. Okay, Harry. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Paolo. Bye, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Nixus pilot Jim Payne and Nixus designer Paolo Iscold spoke to me from Minden, Nevada. Just a few days after this interview was recorded, Jim and co-pilot Alan Coombs smashed another record. This time, it was a declared 750-kilometer out-and-return task. When all was said and done, they flew a total flight distance of 2,270 kilometers with an average speed of 223 kilometers per hour. In earlier episodes of The Thermal, Jim spoke to us about his other record-breaking flights in the Perlan Glider, exploring the Antarctic wave in Argentina. But due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the 2020 Perlan Project Expedition has been cancelled. Jim Payne uses SkySight, the latest, greatest weather forecasting tool for glider pilots, to plan and execute his record-breaking flights. If you want to learn more, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number 7 of The Thermal. For listeners of The Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. This month, Gliding Club Confidential goes to Denmark and the Polytechnic Fliegergruppe, based at the Caldred Airstrip. In an earlier episode, you may have heard club member Morten Benick describe some remarkable flights over Denmark that involve crossing some large bodies of water and surfing convergence lines. To find out more about his club, I reached Morten at his home in Copenhagen. Hello, Morton. Uh, thanks for coming back on uh, the Thermal Podcast uh, and to talk about your gliding club. So let's start off with the club. Where exactly is it located? Thank you very much. Uh, the club is is located uh, approximately 100 kilometers east of Copenhagen on the biggest island in Denmark called Sealand. Okay. So island, I'm assuming it's re- relatively flat. Is that the local geography there? Yeah, Denmark is a very flat country. The highest point is approximately 160 meters. And on the island where I'm living, it's the highest point is not more than 100 more meters. So talk to me about the, the flying conditions, the gliding conditions. Is it mostly thermal with a little bit of uh, convergence flying? What do you do there? It's mostly thermal and then a lot of uh, convergence, uh, if that is possible, and a lot of of cloud streets, if that is possible as well. Mm-hmm. Wave, very, very seldom. It's, uh, we have tried it up between the, the clouds. Huh? I guess that would have to bounce all the way over from Scotland or something, right? Yeah, I think it's actually because of the cloud streets where you are on the top of the cloud streets. Actually, we have a, if another wind system, and this is where you have the waves. Huh, wow. Huh. So the, the gliding club itself, des- describe the club to me grass runways, pavement, what do you guys have there? We have uh, our airfield is approximately 1,500 meters. It's uh, have approximately 200 meters in wide. Uh, most of it is grass, but we have a paved runway of nearly 700 meters that okay. we can use as well. That must help in the wet spring conditions. It certainly helps in the, the spring condition, and we actually one of the only clubs in on the island that can start the club quite normally every year. Uh, boy, I've, we we need to consider something like that at my gliding club. We've had seasons where we can't start till the end of June because of the the water. Yeah. So. Definitely a problem in many places. Yeah. So the the club itself, how many members do you have? Is it a big club? We are. Um, Approximately 75 members. Um, the club is called Politeknisk Flyvegruppe. Uh, we are 
original and also now is uh, working very closely together with the Danish Technical University. Mm-hmm. And most of our members is engineers in some way or another. Engineers, a whole bunch of engineers. I know there's a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> there's probably a lot of jokes about about engineers. <laughs> yeah. So what, what kind of uh, gliders and, and tow planes do you fly there? Um, we have, uh, for when people are starting, we are flying an ASK-13. Mm-hmm. And then we have a junior. This is a Polish glider. Yeah. Um, then we have a Discus a CS, a normal one. Uh, and then we have a Ventus uh, 2CT, a single seater. We also have a Duo Discus. And uh, both the Ventus and the Duo is with... Uh, uh, it's with a substainer engine. Okay. And then as a tow plane, we have uh, actually a self-built tow plane called Pulit 5, which is only built for towing airplanes. Um, and it's a single-seater. It can climb with five meters per second, something like that with a single-seater. And it can go or sink with uh, 14 to 15 meters per second. So it can go out very fast and come down even faster. A homemade tow plane? It's a homemade tow plane, correctly. Huh. Well, I'm going to have to follow up with you on that, and that'll probably be something for a later podcast, but that sounds fascinating. So it's a very fascinating plane, yeah. With, with 75 members and that kind of fleet, that's a that's a pretty nice gliding club. Yeah, it is. Hmm. Now, are you guys also... Have, uh, sorry, go I, ahead. I think we have, we have also a winch. Yeah. And uh, so... Most of the primary uh, schooling is that we're using a, a winch for that. Okay, is it a, si- a single drum winch, or do you have more? No, it's it's a double drum, double double drum winch we're using. Okay, nice. And what and about? Then, actually, I forgot one sort of thing. We have a uh, we are two clubs at the airfield, and uh, we are sharing a motor falca together with them. Okay. And uh, that's also quite popular for people to to go to fly with. When it's out of the weekends, right? Usually, usually we uh, we only operate uh, in the uh, in the weekends. But having an, a motor glider do that, people they can come after work or maybe sometimes rent it for a day and uh, go to somewhere else and come back again. Right. The motor folk, thats almost a vintage gl- motor glider now, isn't it? Uh, it's it's a very winter's one, and uh, it's do not penetrate very well against uh, no. the wind. So it's, it's going very slowly, but I think nearly everybody can fly it. Yeah, but it's so still it's fun, right? Fun. Yeah, it's still fun, yeah. What kind of annual fees do you have uh, with your club? Well, it depends if you are an, uh, if you're an engineer with a finished education. Uh, we pay approximately, uh, that must be in Danish crowners, I uh, cannot even remember it very well. Let's say it's sixty, seventy dollars per per month. So that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, it is. But then you have to play for pay for the stars and all the other. Right, uh, like like uh, most clubs, yeah. Yeah. So, but so most, many of the pilots they have also their own plane. So right, like you do, you've got your own glider. Got my own glider, yeah. So, so Morton, finally, what's the the best thing about your gliding club? In the absolutely best thing I can think of is that uh, we are a very social club, so to say. And it's meaning in, in the best way that uh, many of us, we come there either Friday evening or Saturday morning, and uh, we stay up there both Friday and Sunday and then uh, go home again. And so every Saturday we are together and uh, we share a good meal together so we have somebody who will cook and they will uh, um, make a dish whatever they like and serve it for the other guys and then afterwards the guys who didn't help with the food they will help with the the dishes afterwards right and you you never you never drink any beer or wine right well usually we drink maybe one or two beers in in the evening it happens it happens i know most gliding (laughs) clubs Listen, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for telling me about your club, and I hope to visit it at some point in the future. 
you are more than welcome to to come to our club and if you come i will give you a ride around perfect uh, ghost, yeah. i will take you up on that morton thanks again take care bye 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 morton benick spoke to me from copenhagen denmark for more info on the polytechnics fleva group go to the thermals facebook page where i've posted a link Antonov is a name long associated with a large Russian aircraft, the kind of aircraft that fly large, heavy oil rig parts around the world for equally large sums of cash. But there is a particular Antonov that doesn't have an engine. It's called the A-15, and it was introduced at the 1965 Paris Air Show. It's a polished aluminum V-tail glider. For Robert Mulder, the A-15 has been a lifelong obsession, and he's now the proud owner of one. I've reached Robert at his home in Moriarty, New Mexico. Hello, Robert. Uh, welcome to the Thermal Podcast. Thank you. Uh, happy to be here. This is my first uh, experience with a podcast. Well, it'll it'll be painless, I promise. So, t- <laughs> t- sure take us back in time. How did your relationship with the A15 start? Uh, I read about it in a magazine, uh, aviation magazine, back in the mid 1960s. There was an article about the um, Paris Air Show which at that time and, and now uh, is still a big showcase for um, aviation in Europe. Mm-hmm. And the Russians had a big display there that year, and it included an A-15 sitting on a trailer. So this article described this, this little Russian glider to you? Yeah, not much detail, uh, but uh, there it was. And uh, for some reason, I suppose perhaps because it's similarity to in shape to the Sisu, which was um, very popular at that time also. Uh, it just co- sort of struck a chord. Okay, give me a description of this glider. What does it actually look like? Well, it, uh, <laughs> it looks a bit like a Sisu. Uh, it's uh, a nose dragger. When, when there's a pilot in the cockpit, it runs on a nose skid. Mm-hmm. It's a V-tail configuration, uh, as the Sisu was, and as Dick Screeter's designs are. It's... Uh, the prototype was 17 meters. Uh, the production ones were 18 meters. So mine's an 18-meter glider. Uh, mine's got the original factory paint scheme, which is uh, orange and black stripe down the side. And then it's painted um, sort of a dull silver color. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when it was in service in a in the Lithuanian Aero Club that I bought it from, it had the, the red star on it and so on. And it's all metal, right? All metal, uh, except that the rudder vaders are fabric covered. It's a wood frame and a uh, fabric covering. So it's a fairly common kind of design for that period. It, it reminds me a little bit of a of a Schweitzer 135 without the uh, T-tail. Mm, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. Because the other 135 was a nose dragger too. But it's it, the ailerons are um, bonded honeycomb aluminum. Really? Which is pretty advanced for that day. Now, now, how many of these gliders were made? I am told by Peter Oker of Germany that there was about 60 of them made. Mm-hmm. And they all went to um, Soviet-sponsored aero clubs. There were some that were flown, um, all Soviet Union world records, uh, feminine world records. Uh, so it was a very active glider uh, in its day, and that's at about 45 to 1. Uh, it had good glide performance. Absolutely. So now let's fast forward a little bit. You first heard about this glider in the 1960s in this Air Progress magazine. Mm-hmm. Now take us fast forward into the future, the first time you actually laid your eyes on one and decided you needed one. <laughs> uh, would have been uh, my time in uh, Lithuania uh, when I was there f- with the uh, Group Genesis project. So I was at... Uh, my office and I looked out into the parking lot and there was an A-15 on a trailer, disassembled on a trailer. <clears throat> I grabbed my camera, ran downstairs and uh, they'd already pulled out from the parking lot, were driving off down the road somewhere. So I uh, asked um, my uh, friend uh, Stasi Skalskas, who's now the uh, marketing director at the Sporting Aviacia, what was that? And he said that was the gate guardian, that was the pole sitter at the uh, airfield there at Portune, and that uh, it had been purchased by the um, uh, Antonov Museum 
and was on its way to the museum in Kiev. Huh. I went, wow, uh, there's still some of those around, huh? He says, oh, yeah. I said, do you think there's some around that might be flyable, that might be for sale? And he said, well, I, let me let me ask around. So uh, a couple of days later, he said, yeah, there, there's one for there's one up at uh, uh, the the uh, ladder club in um, Shadova, which is for the uh, uh, town of uh, Cholet, <clears throat> that is um, up in the rafters. It was flyable, and uh, we negoti- We uh, decided to go up there the next weekend and take a look at it. And what kind of condition was it in? It was actually in very good condition. Uh, the uh, Soviet authorities had uh, commanded that they all be cut up and thrown away when there was an issue with the um, rear bulkhead that the uh, the rudder vaders uh, uh, attached to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of them probably were, but uh, this particular one, they just uh, signed the paperwork and then took the glider, disassembled it, and stuffed it up in the rafters where it sat for quite some time. So we literally took it down from the rafters where it had been sitting for quite a while. So it had a little bit of dust on it, but not much. And um, it's pretty much in um, not new condition, but gently used condition. They seem to have taken reasonably good care of it. Now, you managed to actually take ownership of this after drinking some vodka, I understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, almost all negotiations in Lithuania or any of the Soviet-dominated countries start with vodka, so start and end. Right. Um, actually, that meeting, at first meeting, we sort of agreed to disagree on the price, but did agree to uh, revisit the subject um, later uh, in the spring of the next year. Uh, there was a Lithuanian glider pilot who had expressed an interest in buying it at a much higher price than I could afford. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we decided well, just see what happens with that and uh, talk about it again in the spring. And then that's what we did. It turned out that a um, mandatory service bulletin came out for changing all the oil hoses on the Vilga um, tow planes. Right. That was the popular tow plane in the, in the Eastern Bloc countries. And I figured that that club, smaller than the one that I was in at, at, at Portune, probably didn't have much money in its uh, bank account. So <clears throat> we could um, finish the deal on this glider and they'd have money to buy the oil hoses for their tow planes and they'd be able to fly that year. And that's exactly what happened? That's exactly what happened. Um, I asked my friend's deceased to uh, say, look, here's, here's my offer and I'll pay you in any currency you want, euros, rubles, dollars, Chinese yen, doesn't <laughs> yeah. matter. And um, about a week later, I uh, owned a glider. And it's now in New Mexico? Yes, it's here in my shop in New Mexico. Um, because my main business is repairing gliders, the ones that I own are not repaired. They're right. not flyable. But um, it's, not, it's, it's near the top of my list of things to, to uh, start working on once I get, uh, get some time. So how much work do you think it's going to take before you can get this thing airborne? Not much. Um, it's registered already. I have um, translations of all the Russian language placards. It has a full complement of instruments, and I've got a Russian aviation clock to stick in the one empty hole. <laughs> uh, the um, rudder vaders need to be recovered, and uh, I need to do finished weight and balance. And for the air- aircraft, that's that's really about it to get it flying. I want to restore it to the condition it was in when it was in at um, that aero club in the Soviet Republic of Lithuania. Right. So it would have the red stars on it and the um, acronym on the side of the fuselage by the canopy that's something like Army and Navy Flying Club Support Organization or something like that. And, and earlier you mentioned a, a bulkhead issue with these gliders. Is, has that been addressed in this particular aircraft that you have? No, uh, it, uh, the bulkhead in mine is the original, and the engineers at Sportin Aviatia, the lac factory there in Lithuania, had been tasked with analyzing that bulkhead and deciding what was wrong with it. And their opinion was that it was just not beefy enough. Mm-hmm. 
the basic design was fine, but it needed to be a little bit stronger. Well, it turns out um, mine looks fine, and I know that that's where the failure point is, that bulkhead, so I'll keep an eye on it. But I also have a spare bulkhead. Oh, nice. Yeah, I was able to pick up a few uh, extra parts. I've got a, a, com a complete canopy in the frame and uh, a few other little things. Now, I, I imagine it's going to be flown in the experimental class? Yes, it'll be experimental uh, racing exhibition glider. No, I've got to... Um, uh, get a trailer ready for it too. I bought a LAC 12 trailer, mm -hmm. which is long enough, and that's why I bought it. Uh, and I need to put a floor in that and make the fittings and so on and so forth. So there's actually, uh, to get the glider flyable, that's not terribly difficult. To get a trailer roadworthy and, and safe to hold the glider and transport it all the way up to Elmira, that's going to be the more labor intensive part of the project. Yeah. Every time I see Jim Short, who's, as you know, president of the Vintage Glider Association here, he, he bugs me about when's it going to fly, when's it going to fly. So. Right. Well, Robert, thank you so much for talking to me about your, your labor of love. And this glider sounds fascinating. And uh, like I said, I can't wait to see it at some point in the future. Well, I hope I'll be able to fulfill that wish. Okay. Take care, Robert. Thanks for talking to me. Thank, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Robert Mudd spoke to me from Moriarty. New Mexico. That's it for episode number 14 of The Thermal. I will be back again early August with another show that will include a feature interview with G. Dale about volume 3 of his series, The Soaring Engine. I know there are a good number of you out there listening to the podcast. It would really help if you left reviews with your favorite podcast provider, and please let your fellow club members know about the podcast. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Please send interview ideas, or if you'd like your club featured on Gliding Club Confidential, drop me a line. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe. <laughs>